Welcome to On Air, the LTN podcast, number one. I've been talking to a man who lives on the edge of a London LTN. He's pretty good with numbers, and he doesn't think that the claims made by low-traffic neighbourhoods to reduce air pollution add up. Hello, I'm John Machin, and I live in a low-traffic neighbourhood, the Bose LTN, in Enfield, North London. Just over a year ago, in the summer of 2020, I'd never heard of LTNs. Like most people, I was busy coping with the COVID pandemic. Getting COVID, getting over it, getting tested, working from home, going back into work. And that was a problem. The Prime Minister wanted the economy to get back to normal as soon as possible, but we couldn't all just pile back onto buses and trains. The government decided that what was needed was a boost to alternative, active forms of travel, walking and cycling mainly, and they made a lot of money available to councils to implement this. They also threatened councils that if they didn't implement it, less funding would be available in future. And so, Enfield Council dropped an LTN on my area. Normally, there would have been some prior consultation with residents but emergency COVID legislation allowed the council to put the LTN in first and ask questions later, in the form of a parallel consultation that runs alongside the trial, so that people could actually experience the LTN's effects before deciding whether it's for them. On the face of it, not a bad idea, but it very much depends on whether the consultation is genuine, and there are big question marks over that. If you don't know what an LTN is, and you've come to this podcast to find out what's all the fuss about, well, I'm going to let some of their main proponents tell you. It's a neighbourhood in which most or all through motor traffic has been removed or filtered from local residential streets. This can be done by planters, bollards or other street furniture that physically blocks the road. Emergency services can have key access to lockable bollards or by camera-enforced gates without physical restrictions, often so buses may get through, but fines may be imposed for illegitimate use. Low-traffic neighbourhoods target ordinary residential neighbourhoods where people live. They have multiple aims, most obviously to make filtered residential streets truly quiet, while still allowing residents, visitors and deliveries to access all properties by motor vehicle. Those are the words of the University of Westminster's Professor of Transport, Rachel Aldred, from her website. She's one of the leading academics in the field. She goes on to say that in LTNs, peak traffic levels are likely to fall below 100 vehicles per hour, which makes a street a place where people may wander, dawdle or play, even in the middle of the carriageway. Here's how the walking charity Living Streets describes LTNs. Places where through motor vehicle traffic has been removed or reduced, so only residents and deliveries and services have access. Networks of quieter streets where children play out, neighbours catch up, air pollution is lower and walking and cycling are the natural choice for everyday journeys. And here's a quote from Better Streets for Southwark one of a network of Better Streets groups campaigning for LTNs across London. LTNs can reduce vehicles inside the area by 50 to 90%, 
creating a quiet network of streets where anyone can walk, cycle or use their wheelchair in the middle of the road. They enable active travel, healthy lifestyles, less car use, fewer injuries and deaths, cleaner air and fewer carbon emissions. I've lived in an LTN for a year now, and it's certainly quieter inside. People say, we can hear the birds sing again. But where has all the traffic gone? Onto other roads? No, say LTN supporters. It's evaporated, or some of it has. Traffic evaporation is perhaps the main claim of LTNs. I'm going to let the words of Emma Griffin, writing in 2019 as Vice Chair of London Living Streets, explain it. The study she refers to is the Cairns study of 1998, a seminal document for proponents of LTNs. And she also refers to an LTN in Waltham Forest, North London, that is widely held up as an example of a successful LTN. Experience reveals that predictions of traffic problems caused by low-traffic neighbourhoods almost always fail to materialise and that significant reductions in overall traffic levels across an area can happen as a result of people making a wide range of behavioural responses to the new traffic configurations. The most comprehensive study of the phenomenon of disappearing or evaporating traffic brought together experience from 70 case studies across 11 countries with opinions from 200 transport professionals. It shows that traffic does not behave like water moving through pipes, finding an easier path as another narrows. Instead, it is a force of human choice, driven by people making all sorts of different decisions when driving conditions change. People change their mode of travel, chose alternative destinations or the frequency of their journey, consolidated trips, took up car sharing or didn't make the journey at all. In half of the case studies, there was an 11% reduction in the number of vehicles across the whole area where road space for traffic was reduced, including the main roads. This research shows that low-traffic neighbourhoods do not simply shift traffic from one place to another, but lead to an overall reduction in the numbers of motor vehicles on roads. In Waltham Forest, this meant there were considerable reductions on streets within the neighbourhood. Some streets have seen over 90% reductions in motor traffic and 56% on average. On the surrounding roads, there have been increases, but they have not taken all the displaced traffic. OK. Let's move on and hear from my first guest. I first came across Peter Payne on a local Palmer's Green website doing what I think is very much needed in the debate about LTNs. Sticking to the evidence, interpreting the numbers and keeping it polite. Which can be really difficult given how divisive these issues are. There's a lot more heat than light and that's why I'm doing this podcast. To try and reverse that trend and give listeners access to calmly expressed opinions on the topic of air pollution in general, and LTNs in particular. I'll be honest with you, quite a few of my nearest and dearest have said, why on earth are you making a podcast about something so dull? I'm sick to death of arguments about roads. I get that, a big part of me doesn't want to be doing this either, but the issue could hardly be more important. We're facing a climate emergency because of what we put into the atmosphere, and it's vital that we respond to that. Time is short, we can't afford to go down blind alleys. To their supporters, LTNs 
are a much-needed step in the right direction. To their opponents, a criminal and counterproductive waste of time and money. Two personal points. First, I've got some skin in this game because I'm a long-term asthmatic. And more recently, I also have COPD, another lung condition very possibly caused by air pollution. I don't smoke and I never have. Secondly, my year in the Bose LTN has made me pretty fed up with it. The details of why are probably for another edition. But nearly every day I see, and sometimes get stuck in, traffic queues on the main roads surrounding the LTN that weren't there, or nowhere near as badly, before it was put in. So I want to be clear, I'm coming at this issue from a sceptical viewpoint, but I also want to keep an open mind. You'll hear me say I'm fairly lefty, a traditional Labour voter. Don't let that worry you if that's not your political bag. I've been pretty shocked by some of the things Labour have done here in Enfield. I want to be clear about my standpoint, but the question of air pollution is, I hope, a non-political one. There's a lot of politics surrounding LTNs, to be sure, and we can't avoid that. But in my involvement with LTNs, I'm rubbing political shoulders with people I wouldn't normally, and that's a good thing. I had a long conversation with Peter, but I'm only giving you the first half of it in this edition because it contains the basic arithmetic of why he believes LTNs don't add up, and that's quite enough for one edition. We're sat on a park bench, so you'll hear people passing by. I hope they're not too distracting. Finally, you might want to get a piece of paper and a pen. It might help to jot a few of the numbers down. Peter Payne, welcome to On Air, the LTN podcast. Hi. Now, you live on Bourne Hill in Southgate. That's right. North London. That's on the border of one of Enfield Council's low-traffic neighbourhoods. Yeah. Uh, and you've been writing about your take on the LTN project on uh, local social media groups. And that's where I first became aware of you. And that's why I'm talking to you today. Because you rather elegantly, I thought, set out why the air pollution argument for LTNs doesn't really add up and I think we could do worse than start off by going over that. Sure yeah um, just to let you know where I'm coming from I'm basically I'm pretty left of centre uh, I've, I've never voted anything other than Labour or other occasion Green in my life. Me too. But the first time ever was in the last local mayor elections I voted for anti-LTN candidates basically because I consider myself to be quite green, quite environmentally friendly, uh, and I cannot see how these LTNs fall into that category. They're being sold as environmentally friendly, but clearly, to me, they're not. And I think that, you know, mathematically, you can show that they can't possibly work, even with a substantial amount of traffic evaporation. Now, the evidence for traffic evaporation, I think, is very flawed. Uh, I've looked into a lot of it, uh, and I think a lot of people have been sold... Uh, a pup really in terms of what this evidence shows but for myself I just think that there's no way that these are environmentally friendly uh, issues. I, I have to say LTNs, I've got to be absolutely honest here, they are something which I think as, as a lefty I would probably have gone for in the sense that I'm concerned about the climate emergency as I think everybody should be and they seem to be a way in which you know the individual can support something locally which is actually doing something because of course 
we all feel powerless in the face of enormous things like climate change and feel terribly insignificant in respect of that. And so I think I get it that when something comes along which seems to give the individual a little bit of ability to be a part and support something which makes a difference, that's attractive and I was attracted to it. And it's fair to say that when the LTN in my part of Enfield, the, the Bose LTN, came along, I objected to it because of the manner in which it was done, because it was imposed under emergency COVID legislation without a prior consultation. But I was still 50-50 on whether LTNs actually worked or not, whether they do what they say on the tin. Yeah. Well, after reading your post and the, the, the numbers in that post, I began to realise that actually, no they can't possibly do that yeah i mean it stems uh, essentially the, the the initial statistic that sort of kicks it all off is that 35 percent of car trips done in london according to tfl which i don't disbelieve are two kilometers or less and these could easily be walked or cycled by most people and that's the sort of kickoff point and yeah it makes sense and to be honest with you i support that I support promoting active travel if you can persuade people if you can educate people even if you can shame people into not using their cars for these short journeys where they can walk or cycle, then that's fantastic. That's a win-win situation. In fact, it's a win-win-win situation because basically, you know, there will be less, a small amount less traffic on the road, uh, less pollution, less greenhouse gas. Uh, the people that are walking, they're getting the exercise, so that's a win. And also the traffic that has to be there is flowing a bit more freely because there's less traffic and therefore there's a small gain in pollution and greenhouse gas there. So I'm not against the promotion of active travel i'm not against cycle lanes you know nope, i think if people want to cycle and can be persuaded to cycle then they should be made safe uh, and cycle lanes certainly do that to a certain extent i have some reservations about the way some are designed i think they have an ulterior motive very often uh, in terms of deliberately trying to slow down other traffic to push people off the roads but you know that that's a sort of separate issue generally speaking i support cycle lanes i support school road closures uh, opening and closing times again there's a clear obvious benefit there safety of children small pollution gain when they're coming in and out of school uh, and encouraging active travel again you know so I've got nothing against those but shutting off large areas of roads and forcing the remaining traffic onto a smaller road network is clearly increasing pollution and if you go through the figures which I hope to do now uh, it's pretty obvious, really, and I don't see why this couldn't be worked out with a pencil and piece of paper before you start, not spending millions on trial schemes. So basically, if if you say 35% of journeys are two kilometres or less, even Transport for London, I mean, you can't get rid of all of those. Some of those are necessary journeys. I mean, people who are old or disabled can't be expected to walk two kilometres or yeah. to, you know, to do an errand two kilometres back. Some people can't do it. I mean, a lot of these people don't have cars, but they're reliant upon friends and neighbours and family to, to do those trips, to help them out for appointments with doctors, dentists, whatever, or even just to get out to the park or a coffee. And I don't think even the pro LTNs would deny them that right. Mm. Uh, then you've got you know, mothers with young children, you've got people carrying heavy loads, which might just be the weekly shop. You know, there's lots of reasons. So even TfL agree with that, and they filter out a certain amount of this 35%, and they come up with a figure of 22%, generally speaking. That figure doesn't take into account weather and terrain and time. Mm. Uh, It's clear, you know, we know cycling drops off 50% between summer and winter. Sure. 
people making the choice whether to use their car is going to be dependent upon weather and also dependent on where they're going in that over that distance. If they're just going along green lanes, they might well walk or cycle. But if yep. they're going up Muswell Hill, it might be a different, you know, different kettle of fish. fish. Yeah. So this is so this is twenty two percent of journeys which are available to be evaporated, yeah. if you like. Yeah. 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 Uh, and that's in so twenty two percent. So for every hundred cars, twenty two of them you could reasonably uh, get rid of. Now, let's take a scenario where you had fantastic success. Okay, let's say you, you got rid of 90% of those. I'm choosing 90% mm. because it makes the maths easy to follow. Okay. okay, so you're getting rid of 20 of those 22 journeys. Okay. Now, the other factor you've got to bear in mind is that the amount of pollution that a car produces on a trip is relative to how much time that car is on the road with its engine running. Sure. Obviously, if you do a five-kilometre trip and it takes you 15 minutes, you produce a certain amount of pollution and greenhouse gas. Mm. If that same journey takes you half an hour, you produce a lot more. Yeah. It might not be twice as much because cars produce pollution at different rates depending on speeds yep. and also some cars have engine cutouts or whatever. Yeah. Cold engine, yeah, warm yeah, cold engine, one, yeah. yeah, all of that. But nevertheless, you're definitely going to be producing a lot more pollution. Mm. So car pollution is relative to the amount of time a car is on the road. So let's say we get rid of those 20 car journeys out of 100 car trips. Yeah. Let's say they're also they're all the full two kilometres. Now, a two-kilometre journey mm. in out of London, Transport for London do this every year. They do a survey of how long journeys take. In out of London, a two-kilometre car journey would take about four minutes. So you've got rid of 20 lots of four-minute journeys, which is you've got rid of 80 car minutes off the road for every 100 cars trips on the road yeah which is fantastic success you would think in yeah. that you know you've got rid of all that pollution all that greenhouse gas but you had 100 cars to start off with 80 of them are still on the road yeah. so how long do you need to delay those 80 cars that are still on the road for to counteract the 80 minutes that you've just saved literally it's just one minute if you delay those remaining cars for just one minute by making them go the long way around because of the planters and through more congestion then Clearly, you're increasing pollution and you're increasing greenhouse gases. So the question is, in a scenario when you're getting rid of 90% of those journeys, you're still increasing greenhouse gases. How the hell does it work? Now, the argument against that is, well, hang on, though. Okay, we're seeing a lot of congestion at the moment, but that's because we haven't got rid of 90% of those journeys. Well, it's been a year... Uh, the the LTN's been in a year and there's no sign of that happening but let's say you know it it did happen people say oh but if you've got rid of 20% of the cars off the road then there won't be the congestion right except you're not getting rid of 20% of the cars off the road and here you've got to do another little bit of maths because it's short journeys we're talking about yeah so if if you imagine it's 35% roughly a third of car journeys are two kilometres or less The middle third of sort of medium length journeys average say four kilometers and the longer journeys uh, average say eight kilometers now i've chosen those figures two four and eight again because they're easy mass figures but they're actually not that far off the actual figures okay so obviously a car that's doing eight kilometers on a long journey is on the road four times longer than a car doing a short journey and a car doing a medium journey of four kilometers is on the road twice as long so that means basically for every seven cars Four of them are doing a long journey, two of them are doing a medium journey, and only one of them is doing a short journey. So it's yeah. only actually one in seven cars on the road are doing a short journey. Yeah. That's about 14%, not 35%. Yeah. But it's actually, 
it's worse than that because when you actually look at the figures, the, the two kilometre short journeys are actually up to two kilometres, so they average about 1.6. The medium journeys, which are, I said, four kilometres, are actually lower than that, it's more like 3.3. But the upper end, at eight kilometres, it's very difficult to find out what that average is because Transport for London don't produce figures. They, their top third on all their graphs is above five kilometres, and they don't say what the average is for those, those journeys. So the only way I've been able to estimate that is from uh, distribution graphs. They're called right-tailed distribution graphs. And if you do that, you come up with a figure, a conservative figure, I believe, of about nine kilometres on average for those longer journeys. Now, that's not unreasonable. If you think, consider from here into central London, it's like 14, 15 kilometres. Uh-huh. If you go from here to Brent Cross, it's like 10 kilometres. So, yeah. you know, uh, that seems a fairly reasonable average for those longer journeys, and nine kilometres. If anybody's got any information out there that's better than that, I'd love to see it, because TfL don't seem to produce it. I can't find it anywhere. But if you do the figures now based on 1.6, 3.3 and 9, mm. you find that actually the short car journeys on the road works out at about 11%. So 11% of cars on the road are doing short journeys. But that nice. is percentage of cars. That's not percentage of traffic. Now, cars make up round about between 75 and 80% of traffic. It used to be near 80%. Nowadays, it's near 75% because of the increase in internet shopping and, and supermarket deliveries or whatever, putting more LGVs on the road. But the rest of the traffic, other than cars, is buses, lorries, light goods vehicles, and taxis and cabs. So... If cars only constitute about 75% of the traffic on the road, that 11% figure of low-journey cars comes down to 75% of its value in terms of traffic. So it's only 8% of traffic is cars doing short-journey traffic. You're now down to 8%, but we said we got rid of 90% of the traffic that we could get rid of, which is 20 out of 22 but in reality, that's 20 out of 35, because there was a certain amount we couldn't get rid of. Mm. So 20 out of 35 is about 60%. So you now got to reduce the 8% figure down to 60% of its value, down to about 5%. So the cars that you could realistically get rid of, and if you got rid of 90% of them, you're only getting rid of 5% of traffic, yeah. which is why you're not going to get rid of the congestion. If you're, if you're pushing the other 95% of traffic onto the smaller road network, you're bound to have the congestion that's going to overtake any pollution gain that you've made from those 20 car trips, which is 90% of the ones you possibly could get, off the road. So I just cannot see how it works out. And in, in, in addition to that, there's two other factors that make it worse. One is the pollution caused because of the congestion isn't being spread around it's much more localised and that's much more dangerous pollution. Because of queuing traffic, very slow moving. Essentially, yeah. Traffic that moves flowing, you know, 15, 20 mile an hour. It's producing its pollution and greenhouse gases over a, a certain period as it moves. So it's spreading essentially because it's moving in the first instance. And secondly, the movement of the cars themselves, the car behind following, causes wind eddies, which yes. lifts the pollution up and disperses it. Yeah. So moving traffic always has that advantage of dispersing the pollution almost automatically, to a certain extent. Sure. Queuing traffic, that doesn't happen. It builds up and it builds up. Now, the background levels of pollution, in air pollution in London, really aren't that bad. I mean, I know there's a lot of issues, and it's still a concern of mine, but uh, in terms of 
legal figures. The actual background pollution, not not that bad. But the the build-ups around congested traffic can easily spike at the levels which can cause asthma attacks. Oh, 100%. I mean, I have asthma and COPD, and I know what my lungs tell me. If I go down onto the North Circuit, it absolutely chimes with, with what you're saying. If I go down there on a day when there's slow queuing traffic, well forget it i am going to have an asthma attack mm. i don't do it you know uh, it, there's no point you know i could burn through half an inhaler mm. you know it's yeah. it's really not a wise thing to do the, the i mean the other aspect of it the second aspect of it is you've only taken cars off the road lorries in particular are not coming off the road then they never went through the ltns anyway but mm. nevertheless they're now getting additional congestion from the cars that you've diverted onto their routes essentially and lorries produce pollution and CO2 gases at six, seven times the rate of a car. So if we said before you've only got to delay car traffic by one minute to wipe out the pollution gain from getting rid of those short journey traffic, yeah. you've only got to delay a lorry for 10 seconds yeah. before you're into net pollution gain. To me, it just seems ridiculous. More from Peter in a later edition. So... I've kicked off this podcast with an anti-LTN voice. I don't want it to feature only LTN sceptics, but so far, they're the only ones I've been able to find. If you're listening to this and you have a different view, contact me at onairltnpodcast at gmail.com. That's all one word, onairltnpodcast at gmail.com. Here's what I take from what Peter has said so far. LTNs can't possibly reduce air pollution because their target, short journeys that can be converted to active travel, represents such a small percentage of overall traffic on the roads, all of which is producing pollution. On his figures, 5% of overall traffic. And, stop press, I'm still talking to Peter and he tells me that there are new figures which might mean that that number is even smaller. I'll update you on that when I return to the rest of our conversation. I want to emphasise that none of this is tricksy maths in any sense. It's simply comparing like with like. Pollution isn't produced simply by journey numbers. It's produced by journey numbers times distance. Here's an analogy. If a village had only 1,000 cherries and 1,000 melons to feed its inhabitants and someone from a neighbouring village stole all the cherries, it wouldn't make much sense to say that half of the total food stores had gone missing. Because cherries are a lot smaller than melons. Size matters. Distance matters. And LTNs, on this analysis, can only scratch the surface of traffic pollution at best. So what will happen if LTNs proliferate across cities? Because they take such a small proportion of traffic off the roads, and the remaining traffic nearly all of it, has to occupy a significantly smaller amount of road space, in other words, only the main roads, then we'll see greater congestion. For an asthmatic, or for anyone worried that they or their children will become asthmatic, that's not a happy thought. Congestion, slow-moving or stationary traffic, produces much more pollution than traffic in motion. Engines are way less efficient at slow speeds or tick-over and the pollution builds up locally. Take it from a lifelong asthmatic. It's the peaks in air pollution that cause asthma attacks, not the averaged readings. All of which 
begs a question. Is that the real plan? To create congestion? To make car journeys so awful that drivers will be forced out of their cars by sheer gridlock? I don't want to believe that, but we need to look at what is happening around us. LTN supporters say that their main effect is to reduce traffic, and therefore air pollution, inside the LTN zone. And a side effect of that is some increase in traffic on main roads, but the phenomenon of traffic evaporation, changes in driver behaviour, means that that increase is acceptable. I think the implication of what Peter Payne is saying is that, in reality, those two effects are swapped around. Because they can only target such a small proportion of overall traffic, in fact, their main effect is to increase traffic and therefore congestion on main roads. And any reductions in traffic or pollution locally are the side effect. You could take this thinking a step further and ask this question. I know many who do. Perhaps the politicians who are planning so many interlocking LTNs across London and other UK cities know this only too well. Perhaps the air pollution claims for LTNs are only put out there to make the schemes popular. In a word, they're greenwash. Perhaps some politicians believe that ends justify means and that drivers are so selfish that they'll happily kill the planet with their emissions unless something draconian is done to stop them. So short-term increases in pollution and being economical with the truth about them are a price worth paying to get long-term decreases. That's a theme I think we'll explore in later editions. In the next edition of On Air, the LTN podcast, I talk to Purumir, a Labour councillor from Tower Hamlets in East London, who thinks Labour needs to rethink its support for LTNs, not least because Labour lost a by-election in Tower Hamlets to the Aspire Party after a campaign fought almost entirely on a single issue, low-traffic neighbourhoods. Until then... Thanks for listening.